0: today's sermon is going to be focused on Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. If you want to follow along in your Bible, copy the text, you can do that. Uh, Here, i got my Bible right here beside me, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. A lot of the text will also be on the screen, but just be prepared to follow along in the text. That's how you get the most out of it. So what comes to mind when you hear the title, the word, king? What do you think of? For me, my first thought, when I think of a king, is I think of ancient warfare, like ancient battles, like uh, guys wearing shields and having uh, swords and spears and bows and arrows. You know, I think of those types of weapons and people going to ancient-style battle. In fact, I also think of weapons like this. This looks pretty cool, huh? These, are, these Somebody gave this to me that went to Scotland Uh, many years ago, and they bought this for me as a gift. These are weighted, and they're spiky, and I don't know what you call this weapon, but when I think of a king, and I think of kingdoms and ancient warfare, I think of weapons like this, and I think if I were going to battle, this would be my weapon of choice. These are some of the things that I think of when I think of a king, but probably most of all, what I think of when I think of a king is a throne. A king always has a throne. So what do you think of when you hear the title King? Their TV show Family Feud, I'm not sure if anybody watches it, but I I don't, but I read this that many years ago on an episode of Family Feud, there was a question on there where they had polled 100 people, and they asked 100 people, when somebody uses or mentions the king, to whom might he or she be referring to? The king. And here were the top four results out of a hundred people. Two people said, when they hear The King, they think of Burger King. Three people said, when they hear The King, they think of Martin Luther King Jr. Seven people said that they think of Jesus. And 81 people, 81 people out of a hundred, can you guess what they said? They said that they think of Elvis Presley. I don't know if he's who came to mind when you think of the king or a king but that's kind of the world that we live in now is that when people hear king they think of elvis but in the ancient world uh, you know for us kings and kingdoms we don't live, live in that kind of world but in the ancient world kings and kingdoms were were very common it was a common reality and kings in the ancient world had had all the power in their kingdom they could Let live, or they could kill. They could promote. They could demote. Whatever they said goes. And Jesus lived in a world where kings and kingdoms were a common reality. And I would argue that maybe it's still a common reality for us today because we all have our own little kingdoms. What's your kingdom right now? Maybe it's maybe it's your house, your home. Maybe it's your family. Maybe your little kingdom is a group that you're a part of. Maybe your little kingdom is some organization that you're involved in. Your kingdom, your own little kingdom, is the range of your effective will. That's how Dallas Willard defined it. Your kingdom is the place, whether it's a small little place, it's your place where what you say goes. Where what you want to happen, happens. We all have our own little kingdoms. I mean... Little kids, toddlers learn this from an early age because their two favorite words are no and mine. And what toddlers, what little infants, you know, what little kids are saying when they say no or that's mine is they're kind of establishing their own little kingdom. When kids grow up and They're crammed in the backseat of a car and they say something like, this is an imaginary line, this is my space, you don't cross over into my space. What they're saying is, this is my little kingdom. We all have a little kingdom. So what is your kingdom? Well, the problem with our little kingdoms is all of our own little kingdoms are junked up by sin. We have a sin problem. But if you take all of our little kingdoms, whatever that may be, your family, your your house, your organization, your group, and you start merging these little kingdoms together, what you get are schools, cities, societies, and nations. So all these little kingdoms combined together are what we would call the kingdoms of the earth. There are plenty of kingdoms of this earth, and when all of them together, that's what they are. How are the kingdoms of the earth doing? If you're paying attention to what's going on in the world, if you just watch the news and, and everything that goes on in this world, the kingdoms of the earth, we're not doing too great. But then you have Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Son of God, the King of Kings, I would say. Jesus comes, and in the gospels, what we read is his central message was about the kingdom. The kingdom of God, or in the Gospel of Matthew, it's the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is the kingdom bringer. And if our little kingdoms, if the way to define that is the range of our effective will, then the kingdom of God is the range of God's effective will. The kingdom of God is breaking, breaking in wherever we're at when God's will is being done. And all throughout really human history since Jesus was on this earth and even in our time today, there's kind of a collision that's taking place between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this earth. And this morning as we focus on Matthew chapter 2, what we're really going to see in all of Matthew chapter 2 and all of the gospel of Matthew, but especially these first 12 verses, is there is a collision taking place between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this earth. So I want to read verse 1 and 2 again, and maybe you'll just kind of notice the kingdom language, notice the kingly type language as we read this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So you see this collision right there in verses 1 and 2. You have this guy named King Herod, but then you have these wise men or these magi who are saying, hey, there's a king that's been born. Where is he at? There's a rival kings right now. They're colliding. Let's take a step back and look at verses 1 and 2, and let's try to figure out who these characters are. First of all, we have the magi, or in the NRSV and other translations, they're referred to as the wise men. Who, who are these wise men? Who are these guys? Uh, most commentators would say they might be magicians, uh, maybe the magi, the wise men, were were known for their ability to interpret dreams, and maybe even more popular than that, they're known as astrologers, they studied the stars, and that kind of makes sense in the context of Matthew chapter 2. Now, contrary to popular belief, the legend has it that there were three wise men. Well, we don't know that to be true because Matthew doesn't tell us there's three of them. What we do know, well, they do give three gifts a little bit later on. That's where we get the idea that there's three of them. We do know that there's some. Maybe there's three of them. Legend has it that there are three kings. and There's old Christmas songs, We Three Kings, but we're not told that they're kings. We're just going to call them wise men. And I really like these wise men. The the last few weeks, the more I've studied Matthew chapter 2, the more I've really learned to like these guys because I think they're seekers. Yeah, they studied the stars. Yeah, they followed the star. But there was something inside of them that told them to pursue this. There was something. I don't know if God revealed it to them, if God spoke to them, or, or maybe they were influenced by Jews from the exile in Babylon, and so they had some framework of, of what this might be, but there was just something inside of them. I believe they were spiritual speakers. I mean, spiritual seekers, not speakers, spiritual seekers looking for something. They were pursuing God, and they travel a long ways to come to Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 2. We don't know where they came from. might have been Babylon, Persia, Iraq, Iran. I don't know, but either way, they came a long way to follow the star to look for this king that's been born. That's the wise men. Now, who is King Herod? Uh, historically, he's known as Herod the Great. What do we know about him? Well, he became king of the Jews. He was appointed king of the Jews in 37 B.C. by the Roman Senate. And he, re- he reigned as king of the Jews from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. And what we know about Herod the Great, or some people call him Herod the Not-So-Great, was that he was, he was insane. He was violent. He had people killed whenever he wanted them killed. He had one of his wives killed. He had three of his sons killed. He had an uncle killed. He had a brother-in-law killed. He would do that because he was a king and he had all the power. But he was paranoid. If he ever felt like somebody was threatening his power, he had them killed. But not only that, he also had a lot of elaborate buildings built. He took part in rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. So you could say that Herod was famous for killing and building. And those are the two characters that kind of set the stage there in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. These wise men that come come from the east, following the star, looking for a king that's been born. And then you have the guy who's been appointed king of the Jews, who was really a descendant of Esau, so he's only half Jew in King Herod. Well, in verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. I think verse 3 is an interesting verse. When King Herod hears about this supposed king that's been born, he's threatened. And if you think about our own little kingdoms, like I talked about from the intro, what do we do when our, when our little kingdoms are threatened? You know, little kids say, get out of my room, or if your house, your home is your little kingdom and somebody's not acting right in your house, you say, get out of my house. You don't act like that in my house. Well, King uh, King Herod, his kingdom is kind of threatened here by the thought of another king being born. But what's interesting about Matthew 2, 3 is it's not just King Herod who is disturbed, but it's also all of Jerusalem was disturbed with him. That's kind of a foreshadowing of what's going to happen later on in the Gospels when Jesus is rejected by Jerusalem and eventually killed on a cross. So this is Herod's plan. This is what he does in verse 4. He called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. So he's feeling threatened. He's feeling disturbed. He gets all the religious leaders together, and he says, hey, tell me, there's supposed to be a Messiah coming. Where is he supposed to be born? And then in verse 5 and 6, all these religious leaders speak up, And they say, in Bethlehem in Judea, that's where he's to be born. They said, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. The answer to where the Messiah is to be born is where? Bethlehem. Well, we know a little bit about Bethlehem because that's where Jesus was born, but it was also the home of King David. Bethlehem was, was really close in proximity to Jerusalem. It was only about five or six miles away. So in the ancient world, in the first century, in the time of Jesus, you could walk from Jerusalem to Bethlehem and back in one day. Nowadays, in the modern world, you could drive from Jerusalem to Bethlehem and be there in 15 to 20 minutes. That's where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem. And look at who Herod calls in to his throne room to ask about this. The chief priests, the scribes. Basically, these are the religious leaders. These are the guys who knew the scriptures and knew them really well. They had mastered them. They had known the scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. They had known these scriptures since birth. And what they quote is comes from Micah chapter 5 verse 1 and 2 and 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 2. This prophecy about the Messiah. And you might notice a character contrast going on here. You have these wise men who have traveled from really far away to pursue this Messiah, to pursue this king, to go see him. And then you have these religious leaders who, by, based on the scriptures, they know he's supposed to be born in Jerusalem, but they're not rushing, or he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem, and they're not rushing out to go to Bethlehem to see him. So right away you see like these foreigners, these Probably Gentiles, outsiders, and these wise men, they seem to care a little bit more than the religious leaders. So in verse 7 and 8, it says, Then Herod called the magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now we know that obviously Herod does not want to actually go worship this supposed king born in Bethlehem what Herod is really doing is he's being deceitful because he is going to be on a mission to seek and destroy because that's what he does the magi leave in verse 9 and after they heard the king they went on their way and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was now before we go any further. One big question that I have, and then maybe you have too, is what is this star? What is this star that they were seeing that was leading them to Jesus, and how did they know to follow this star? When is the last time that you have gone outside and you've looked at the stars at night? I do this pretty much every night before I go to bed, especially during the winter time, because it feels great if the night is clear. I'll go out in my front yard or my backyard, and I'll look up at the sky, and I'll look at the stars. I love doing that. But because I live in the city and there's lights everywhere, I have a very limited view of the stars. It's not often in this world that we live in today that we get a good, full view of the stars without other lights blocking it. When I lived in Mount Pleasant, we had a guy that went to church with us, Mike Thompson. So hi, Mike, if you happen to be watching this. Mike told me this story many years ago where He and his wife uh, had hosted a group of college students to come stay with them for the weekend. And they came inside, they were kind of doing their meeting and greeting, and then they went back out to their cars to get their luggage. And Mike said about 15 minutes went by, and these kids didn't show back up. So he went outside to check on them, and they were just sitting by their cars looking at the stars. See, Mike lived out in the, kind of out in the woods, out in the country, so there wasn't many streetlights and he said, Are y'all okay? And they said, Yeah, we've just never seen the stars like this before. We live in the Metroplex. You know, there's usually other lights that kind of block it. We don't get to the full view of the stars like this. You see, in the ancient world, there were no, there's no electricity, there was no house lights or street lights or headlights coming from cars. There were no they usually, at most nights, they probably got a pretty full view of the stars. And there were many people who studied the stars and studied the planets, especially people from the east. And they gave meaning to these stars. They gave meaning to these planets. And that's probably what these wise men are, As they studied the stars and they had followed a star. But the night sky is filled with stars. So how would they know about one star? What is this star that they're following? Some say that it's when Saturn and Jupiter were in conjunction with each other which apparently this year, 2020, I think on December 21st, that's supposed to happen again. Maybe that's what the wise men saw. Maybe it was a meteor. Maybe it was a comet. Maybe a supernova occurred. We're not real sure. There's been a lot of study, a lot of speculation as to what this star is. The most important thing about this star is that it led them to Jesus. There's an old song and uh, the old hymns. I got a a hymnal right here. The Songs of Faith and Praise. And song number 1005, I got it marked right here, is a song called Beautiful Star of Bethlehem. When I was in Mount Pleasant for about nine years, the church there, one of the main song leaders was a guy named Galen. Hi, Galen. It's Mike's brother, who I just told the story about, Mike. So if you guys ever seen, watch this, how are y'all doing? Good to see you. Uh, Galen would always lead. His favorite song was song number 1005, Beautiful Star of Bethlehem. If you ever had to call an audible or sing a song last minute, he would always say, hey, t- turn to 1005, and we would sing this song over and over, Beautiful Star of Bethlehem. And I got the songbook here, so I could sing it for you right now, but I'm not going to, thought about it. But anytime I sing, I just wind up distracting people because I can't sing very well. If you think about this song, Beautiful Star of Bethlehem, the guiding the wise men on their way that still doesn't answer what the star is. And we don't really know, to be honest. We don't know a lot about these wise men. We don't know a lot about this star. And there's a little bit of a mystery to it, and I'm okay with that mystery. I know that God was working, and God used that star to lead these wise men to Bethlehem, to the house, to the place where Jesus was laying. So in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 10, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. They were overjoyed. This long trip that they had been on. Who knows how long they had been on the road following this star and it had finally led them to the place that they were looking for and they were overjoyed. When's the last time you've been overjoyed? When's the last time you've been overjoyed? Because of Jesus. In verse 11, On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. First of all they go into a house. Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus, they're no longer in the manger. They probably stayed in Bethlehem for a little while and now they've made it to a house. And these wise men who have traveled a very long distance, they finally show up to this house and I I imagine, you know, they're looking for the king of the Jews. And what do they see? Well, they see a a toddler or or an infant who's economically limited, surrounded by modest surroundings. I imagine it was probably a pretty small, poor house, and this baby is being held by a teenage mother. That's what they've traveled this far, this long journey, to see. And what's their response? They, They get on their knees and they worship. They worship Jesus as the king. And I think what Matthew is showing us in the Gospel of Matthew is he's not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of all nations. He's the king of everything. Not just the Jews, but these wise men, the outsiders, the foreigners, the Gentiles. Jesus is the true king. And the gifts that they bring to Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, I could spend some time talking about that. But in summary, these gifts were gifts that you would bring to a king. Because Jesus is the King. And the great thing about this is we, we spend some time thinking about the, the gifts that they bring to Jesus, but the greatest gift of all was that baby that they came to see Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God incarnate, the Christ child. That's the greater gift. For many years, my family participated in something called Magi gifts. And we would get a shoebox, a small you know, shoebox, regular size, whatever it is. We'd put school supplies, and we'd put toys, and whatever would fit inside this shoebox, we'd wrap it up, and we would send it to Honduras, and they would give it to kids, I guess, who weren't able to receive Christmas gifts, and that was their Christmas gift for the year. But usually it was something that, they could, that would be helpful for them. It's called Magi gifts. And it was inspired right here by these wise men, by these Magi from Matthew chapter 2, And they have been inspiring gift-giving for many years now. So they go in, they worship, they present these gifts, and then when it's time to leave, in verse 12, it says, Having been warned in a dream, which is common in Matthew 1 and 2, been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they return to their country by another route. So God, I imagine, is using this dream to tell them, don't go back and tell Herod where Jesus is. Go home another way, but maybe... Maybe verse 12 is also showing us that once you meet Jesus, you'll never be the same. Maybe one of the things that Matthew is telling us is that once you meet Jesus, you no longer walk the old road. And that's all we know about these wise men. Were there three of them? Maybe. Magi, wise men, whatever you want to call them. I like these guys. We don't hear anything else about them, but I like the fact that they took a long journey to find Jesus. They presented gifts to him, and they were seeking him out. We don't know what becomes of them. So, I'll come back to this question that I started with. What do you think of when you think of a king? And what is your kingdom? Who's the king of your kingdom? Are you the king of your own little kingdom? Who's the king? What do you think of? Is it King Herod? The man with the power and the actual throne who could kill people? Is that the real king? Or is the real king... The baby that they found in Bethlehem who grows up to become what we would call Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus, who I believe and we all believe is the real king, is a very different kind of king than King Herod. Instead of killing, Jesus absorbs all the violence and eventually Jesus's throne is going to be a cross. That baby that was born there in Bethlehem is going to grow up with the purpose and the intention of being a sacrifice on the cross. He is the real king. That is who the real king is. And we're seeing this collision of the kingdoms of the earth and the kingdom of God. I read this story many years ago about Robert the Bruce, who was the king of Scotland. And as the story goes, when he was on his deathbed, he requested that his heart be removed and I guess made out of a neck, you know, they make a necklace out of it and then he appointed a noble knight to wear the king's heart around his neck into battle. And a guy named James Douglas took on that task. So every time he went to battle, he would wear his king's heart around him. And one day on the battlefield, when James Douglas knew that he was going to die, as the story goes, he took off that necklace where his king's heart was on it. He flung it into the air and he shouted out, Fight for the heart of your king. Fight for the heart of your king. When I think of kings and kingdoms and the kingdom of God and Jesus being the true king and the mission that God has given us on this earth, I kind of hear that echo into into our lives as well. Fight for the heart of your king. Later, Jesus would teach us to pray in Matthew chapter 6 and the Lord's Prayer, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then later on in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What kingdom are you a part of? And who is your king? We believe that Jesus is the true king. And if you want to find life here now on this earth and in eternal life, then follow King Jesus. And again, if you need help with that, I know we're not at the building please reach out to us. If you desire to be baptized, email us. Let us know. We can set that up.